Welcome to the most enchanted podcast in all the realms. I'm Lynn. I'm Elisa. And I'm Chell. Together, we are the, the Narrators, Narrators 3. And this is Once Upon a Rewatch, where all plot devices come with a price. Welcome to Once Upon a Rewatch in Wonderland, Episode 2, Who's Stone Serpent? In which we cover episodes 4 through 6 of the show. This is Narrator Chell with a little bit of housekeeping. So I'm sorry, we usually have a title card segment for each episode, at least in the, the main show. And I did have a whole list, but then I was like, well, what title card? Because it was looked like it was all the same. And it literally took me until episode four to realize that the title card is so busy and hurt my eyes so much that I completely could not see the change in them. So episode one had none, episode two had Silver Mist, and episode three had the Forget Me Not. There we go. All right, so we're going to kick this off with episode four, The Serpent. The original air date was November 7th, 2013. The writer was Jan Nash. The director was Ralph Haymaker. And the title card was A Serpent. We begin with a slightly coif-corrected Jafar. That man got a glow up. He looks great. Mm -hmm. And he wants answers from the Red Queen, as he can't understand why she brought Will along with Alice back to Wonderland. When she tells him that the knave is inconsequential, Jafar demands that she rid them of our good boy Will. Meanwhile, Alice and Will are chased by the Collectors, mercenaries sent from the Caterpillar. In order to protect Alice, Will leads the hunters away from her location. And he, like, he trips during his heroic distraction, and it was so cute and perfect, mm. and I love him so much. However, just as the mercenaries are closing in on him, the Red Queen swoops into his rescue, only to imprison him herself. Jafar confronts the Queen, demanding to know why the knave wasn't killed immediately. Jafar then orders the Red Queen to publicly execute Will, as he theorizes it will draw out Alice. Jafar tells the Red Queen to start acting like a queen, instead of a little girl who stole a crown, which, rude. The Red Queen intends to free Will. But he is a stubborn lad who taunts his former lover. And wow, these two really need couple counseling. But I'm here for it. <laughs> will doesn't believe Anastasia will go through with the execution. So of course, she totally goes through with it. Meanwhile, Alice attempts to find Will in the underworld. But it is stopped before she enters by a woman who goes by the name Lizard. She offers to go after the Red Queen with Alice since she needs repayment from the knave. After all dead man can't pay debts. However, it turns out that the Lizard and Will have a rather deep history together. Will needed someone to tag along with after his breakup with Anastasia, and the sighted little street urchin Lizard was the perfect partner in crime. On the road to the castle, Alice and Lizard come across a notice. Public execution today. The Knave of Hearts. The rabble is really enthusiastic about it and get all gussied up from the Cajun because, hey, who doesn't love a good themed execution? With the power of teamwork, Alice and Lizard successfully rescue Will, only to be cornered in the maze by Jafar and the Red Queen. Jafar gets rid of Lizard and begins to choke the life out of Will, forcing Alice to use a wish, which she cleverly words to entwine their lives together. If she or Will dies, the other dies. Jafar attempts to torture Alice into making another wish, but she is steadfast. Jafar fucks off, but not before turning Will into a stone statue first. 
Aware that the Red Queen is Anastasia now, Alice gives her a good slap for refusing to help and siding with Jafar. Alice finds herself in a new type of prison. Alive, but never free. There's also a subplot with Cyrus, and he he makes a analogy to wishbones and magic and love. It's magical, and it connects together, and he's got a magic shift to help him escape, and I'm I'm proud of him. He did good. Good, good job, Cyrus. All right, so now we're going to talk about the flashback, which I found really icky. So a long time ago in Agrabah, a young boy witnesses the magic of a mysterious sorceress named Amara in the market. As the villagers cower from her presence, the boy seeks out her residence and requests she teach him dark magic. He wants one thing, revenge. The boy, Jafar, admits that he wants to seek punishment against his father, the Sultan, for tossing him aside as a bastard child. Roughly 15 years later, Jafar is a grown man in the city of Agrabah. Manipulation is a lesson that comes with the art of dark magic. The serpent, a creature Amara surrounds herself with, sheds its skin in order to be born into a new being. In Jafar's case, he goes from a man who unintentionally poisons a man to one who seizes the advantage in doing so. After Jafar's first kill, Amara decides it's time to show him her book of spells. With it lies the secret of the power that rests with the combined magic of the three genies. Amara has waited years for someone to share the magic with, and she has finally found the one person she trusts to do so. The two work together for years to find three genies to accompany their main goal to gain power. But after they obtain two of the gin bottles, Jafar ultimately betrays Amara by stealing her magic and turning her into his serpent staff, which I really can't blame him for, so... And credits! That was the serpent. What were your thoughts? Kid Jafar is the very embodiment of that meme. Mother, mother, I crave violence. <laughs> um, so let's talk about surrogate not mom and some uh, really icky AO3 tags that I totally didn't need to know about. Like, Jan, you nasty. Like, I get it. No shade, but wowzer. That's some real VC Andrew shit between Jafar and Amara. Like, I was conflicted. Like, I, look, initially, I'm like, woo, I admire the chutzpah, right? But then I'm like, wait a minute, this is like a literal kid show? And then I'm like, ew, so maybe not? Ugh, nasty. Regardless, the twist at the end with, like, her being the serpent staff kind of made me go, ew, is this where the writers of The Crimes of Grindelwald got the idea to make Nagini a sympathetic character? Because Amara is not sympathetic. She's a predator. Also, the earnestness of the torture scene when Alice had to use her first wish was kind of lost on me because the CGI setting was so, like, distractingly awful. Like, at least the sets they used for up-close Agrabah was pretty cool. Also, was I the only one who kind of shipped Lizard with Alice? Like, those two kind of had a little chemistry. I ship Alice with no one but going away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Lizard is the hot lesbian this show desperately needs. Like, she look kind of looks like your one uh, Cassandra from no. Tangled, right? No. No? No. No? No. Lizard, I'm talking no. about, not Alice. I know who you're talking about. All right. She doesn't look like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lizard had big, big queer energy, though. I, I did appreciate that. She had big queer energy. She did. I was like, hell yeah. I got it. Speaking of the gays, I wish that the Tweedles had like a little sassy snap or something like whenever they exited the room with like a Tweedles out, you know, because they had that like 
kind they of have a flourish. They do. They do. Yeah. They like they swoosh their capes. They do swoosh their cape. They're very very camp. And I'm kind of here for them because they definitely exude red queen energy. <laughs> like they're, they're part of like her, her gang, you know? All right. So for me, where to start the flashbacks in this episode, I said it a little earlier uh, while narrating, but they made me really uncomfortable. I just, once upon a time, I need you again. I know the show's over, so you can't listen to me, but please listen to me anyways. Stop writing female predators and then being like, it's cool though, because she's evil and hot. Mm. Like, no, a, a child ran away and was taken under her wing. And then years later, when he's an adult, she was like, sweet, now we're lovers. And I'm like, please, no, stop. This started out, he was a literal child. And I feel like the implication is that from this point on, when he shows up, she raises him and like, she was an adult when he was a child and no please once upon a time why this is so why <sighs> so i guess because um, of that his betrayal of her at the end it, it didn't really read as a betrayal to me instead it was like a first step in him getting you know revenge on mm -hmm. on anyone who ever wronged him True. um so I thought that was actually kind of kind of interesting and the the but the main part of the backstory that I did like was the moment with the goat herder mm -hmm. um cuz we saw a glimpse of the man Jafar could have been you know if his hatred wasn't constantly fueled the way it had been like if he was treated with kindness he could have you know had friends like the goat herder gotten along with him and kind to him like we did see that glimpse of thought that part was interesting and r.i.p goat herder you were better than all of them sorry i hate to interject but i just had a thought since you're talking about like you know the grossness of like amara and all that do you think because game of thrones is airing concurrently at this time that they're all like we gotta be like game of thrones but like you know for kids but edgy and they probably were like, i mean it wasn't the only time i feel like they've done a we need to cash in on game of thrones popularity yeah, yeah. put something saucy in there for the parents and it's like Ew. i mean because we had the scene in um the shepherd oh with him the, the, uh, where, with where the james, james just gets just skewered bored. Oh, yeah. And it was like, it was Game of Thrones level violence. So I mean, like, they obviously, I think a couple of different times were like, oh, this is what's selling. We need to mm -hmm. hop onto that. So I would be surprised because I'm I'm convinced that the shepherd was because of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm, like, I'm thinking this too. Yeah. Because it's like, it's a family show. So it's supposed to be something, you know, like the whole family can sit down and watch together. And they're like, oh, we got to give, you know, something for dad, something yeah. for mom. Look at this saucy stuff. And you're like, well, you could have had this like, oh, they're evil and she taught him magic and like you could have done that without it implied that she's been training him since he was a child mm -hmm. and it's just they do that thing where because she's hot she's evil she's a woman like it's it's sexy not predatory right because they've fallen into that so many times now I mean, not, I feel like not, not that well, not with the kid like this time was, but you know, things made in, in the eighties or the nineties age stuff wasn't quite scrutinized, you know, as, as much as it, as it is now. Right. Um, but I mean, this is, this is 2013, right? Like, I really feel like the show should have, should have known better what they're doing here. Um, mm -hmm. just simple changes just could have made it not icky like he could have if, if they had met and she started training him when he was already you know portrayed by naveen andrews like great fine cool let's do it 
I, I just there's no reason for him to be introduced as a child other than they were wanting to show that she's like she deserves to be turned into the serpent yeah yeah but they kind of i mean they like they tried to make you feel bad for her right at the end of the portrayal i don't know but she was a bad she was a really bad person mm -hmm. i don't know this might be another case of once upon a time is trying to tackle topics that it just does not have the toolkit to tackle yeah and just misses them misses the mark <sighs> all right anyway, sorry um, to interrupt your flow no it's good it's good uh, what did I, so what did i do like uh, what did i do like about it i like the moments we had with elizabeth aka the lizard i hope we get more of her before the show ends um I'm sure there's a chimney to clean somewhere exactly well that's the thing is i thought it was fun that they finally pulled in a more minor wonderland character i was like hey that's what we've been asking them to do so hey they gave us build the lizard mm -hmm. as, as a as a you know very queer coded cute girl so hey thanks thanks wonderland let's see yeah i agree the cgi was distracting but that's, that's every episode and just ugh, i wish they didn't rely on it so much but i i did i did see and i liked alice's visible concern and care for will i thought it was nice to see coming from her i thought this episode contained some of the more endearing moments we've seen of alice so far really enjoyed the jail cell scene between will and anastasia probably my favorite scene in the episode those two just interesting chemistry a very interesting dynamic also clearly my my, my two faves in the series so far nice scene in an episode that i just didn't like too much but yeah unfortunately this this episode was sandwiched between two far better episodes so it really stuck out to me just how much I I didn't like this one that much. Mm -hmm. um, might be my least favorite one so far. Uh, honestly, just because of the Jafar backstory made me so uncomfortable. And the episode didn't really frame it like it should make you uncomfortable. And that made it even worse for me. Yeah, um, they framed it in a titillating way. Yes. I was proud of Cyrus for his little escape plan trick. Like the wishbone magic was very like, all right, the, you know, machine of God or whatever. But, but I was also like, good on you, himbo man. I'm, I'm proud of you. I don't know why I've decided Cyrus. I'm just, he's my little guy I'm rooting for, but he's my, he's my special little guy I'm rooting for. <laughs> Anyways, what about you, Lynn? So I have to say this was the most uncomfortable episode we've had of Wonderland and probably the one of the most uncomfortable episodes we've had of Once Upon a Time, period. Right off the bat, introducing the idea that Jafar is the illegitimate son of the Sultan gives us some pretty uncomfortable implications, since that would make him Jasmine's half-brother, which then in turn makes the oh. fact that Jafar spends 90% mm -hmm. of his screen time in Aladdin sexually harassing Jasmine and trying to force her to marry him incredibly, well, icky. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Sit with that for a second. It's not great. <laughs> Yikes. Yes. Think of that. Oh, Get your barf bags, friends. This episode has a lot bad. <laughs> um, the large glaring thing that has already been pointed out, but once again, I wrote it, so I'm saying it, is once more, once upon a time, wants to do the thing I hate, which is framing a story with a female abuser as one where you're supposed to think, oh, wow, girl boss, instead of looking at the fact that this is a story of grooming and abuse of a child. And they very much frame him finally standing up to his abuser as his turn to the dark side or whatever, when it should be seen as just that. He finally rose up against a woman who groomed and assaulted him for years. Like, Jafar is literally an abuse survivor, and we're supposed to instead read it as, oh, a salacious affair with an older woman. And I need one spawn time to just fucking stop. I straight up hate this episode. The parts that weren't uncomfortable backstory once again just continue to tell me I should think Alice is badass and interesting, 
while giving me no real evidence for it other than she talks big. And the next time she says Soyrus's bottle with clumsy mourning like it's a term that should evoke emotion and not just sound ridiculous, I'm going to yeet myself into the sun. It makes me so angry. <laughs> it's so stupid every time she says it, I'm just like, oh, shut up. And it once again has Jafar be like, blah, 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 I'm the boss to the Red Queen. And I'm like, she's a queen and you're the Sultan's lawyer, basically, so hush. Like, come on. This episode gives him more context, but I still feel like he's fairly unnecessary and we should just have the Red Queen. But I am happy they finally ditched the perm or weave or whatever he had going on and gave him a better wardrobe because it was fucking yikes in there, dude. It's sad because he's a hot boy. He double glows up in this episode block that we're about to talk about. But this is the first great step in being like, oh, no, Naveen Andrews is a very handsome man. Which is sad because you're just like, you have this handsome man and they're like, oh, wardrobe's here. They're going to dress you like a clown, though. (laughs) It's like, why? Why do you hate him? What's going on here? What did Naveen ever do to you? I know. I'm like, why were you like, no, we've got the Ringling Brothers section for you, friend. (laughs) (laughs) Not the normal wardrobe section. Come to the tent. It's under under the elephant and the juggling man. (laughs) Anyway, there's there's Lynn's hot takes for our first episode of the night. This one was... Sucks. Yeah. It sucks. I hate it. Let's move on. Let's move on. Yes. Let's move on. (laughs) All right. Moving on. So next we have episode five, Heart of Stone. The air date was November 14th, 2013. The writer was Katie Welch and the director was Paul Edwards. The title card featured the Red Queen's carriage. So Alice is looking after Will's statue, the poor stoned Will. (laughs) Anyway. She leaves him with a blanket to fend off the weather and vows to get him out of this. The Red Queen interrupts Alice in Statue Will's touching moment, though, and she offers Alice a deal. If she helps her get rid of Jafar, the Red Queen will help her find Cyrus. She wants to send Alice on a suicide mission for some magic dust that will help her be immune to, like, Jafar's magic or some shit. I don't know. It's a MacGuffin. It's yeah. A, yeah. Protect, protect herself from Jafar. At least that's what she says that it would like yeah. protect myself. I need a MacGuffin, Alice. Go get me a MacGuffin. Yeah, give me. <laughs> Go fetch me my MacGuffin. Basically. <laughs> the queen leads Alice to a cliff where she has to cross a huge ravine to get the magic dust. It is impossible for anyone to make the jump and live. But there is a tiny sign that states only the purest of heart shall make the leap, which is totally not a ripoff from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Totally not. Because only the penitent man will pass. But they own Indiana Jones. It's brand synergy. Brand synergy. (laughs) The queen believes that Alice's heart is pure and she will be able to magically jump across the ravine unharmed. Okay, but we've already seen Alice murder people, which the core show itself has illustrated darkens one's heart. But okay, whatever. That only applies when they want to shit all over Snow White. Seriously. (laughs) Because it's double standards o'clock over here. Mm. Alice takes a step off of the cliff and miraculously doesn't fall. Well, she's basically walking on air. Her faith is carrying her. (laughs) After a few more feet, she suddenly drops and disappears into the ravine Wily E. Coyote style, which was hilarious. It was pretty funny. The queen stands at the edge of the cliff, dumbfounded. Alice survives, wah, wah, and finds herself in a cave where a raggedy version of her past self visits her and tries to get Alice to kill the Red Queen, 
who little Millie Bobby Brown has used her <laughs> telekinetic powers to like pull down and in, into the cave. <laughs> Alice refuses to go full kill Bill on anyone and she's rewarded the magic dust because I guess not cleaving the Red Queen in half means that she has a pure heart. Whatever. Eh. However, the Red Queen steals it and doesn't fulfill her promise. So she's on brand. Thankfully, <laughs> Alice secretly kept some and uses it to see where Cyrus is. We soon see that Anastasia actually used the magic dust not on herself, but to cure Will. But she leaves him before he knows that she saved him. Which is real sweet. Meanwhile, in the B-plot, Cyrus has made a new buddy out of his fellow captive, who we have all gathered now as the Sultan, but that's not confirmed yet, so let's turn out the lights and pretend to be surprised when they reveal it to us. Cyrus but it's gotta be. It's gotta be. Oh, yeah. Cyrus tells him they won't be held captive much longer as his magic wishbone is nearly done sawing through the bottom of his cage. Cyrus makes it out and tosses the man the keys to his own cage. After considering all of the options, the other captive drops the keys down the cavern below and tells Cyrus to go on without him because he'd just slow him down. He reassures Cyrus that Jafar is not interested in killing him anytime soon because the man has something Jafar wants and Cyrus's time is just, you know, ticking. He's like, just, you know, GTFO, dude. In another area of the tower, Jafar has been torturing the white rabbit for more information on Alice. He even hacked off the bunny's foot. But I mean, snitches get stitches, right? It was very violent. I was like, oh, it God. Was. To be fair, it was like, I was like, oh, my God. Like, in yeah. my notes, it's all caps. I was like, Jesus Christ. I was really shocked. <laughs> but it's all right, because Jafar regrows the foot once the rabbit squeals on Alice. Jafar now wants to take a trip outside of Wonderland and needs the white rabbit to take him there. Bunny makes a hop for it and runs into Cyrus mid-escape. The rabbit gives him a pass and instructs him to go straight to Alice. Jafar catches up to the rabbit and demands he open the portal. In the flashbacks, Anastasia's mother interrupts Will and Anna's escape to Wonderland. After years of sacrifice and working to move the family status upward, Anastasia is willing to toss her mother's desire for her to marry royalty aside. And I'm like, ugh, okay, Cora 2.0. <laughs> Will promises to love Anastasia for who she truly is and not who she is expected to be. So Anastasia's choice is clear. Her mother looks down on her with disgust and requests that if she ever returns home, she does so with a bucket to clean out her chamber pots. Wow, she's uh, going to totally win Mom of the Year. Um, I'm sure she's friends with Cora. However, once in Wonderland, the couple quickly realize that their circumstance is not as magical as they had hoped it to be. Food is scarce, and good company to involve themselves with are not plentiful. After a carriage bringing some catering to the palace passes them by, Anastasia and Will concoct a plan to get into the ball and raid the delicious all-you-can-eat buffet within. Inside the ball, clad in stolen clothes, the beautiful young couple take in their surroundings. Will beelines for the buffet, while Anastasia begins to mimic some of the ladies around her to sound more posh. She happens upon the king, and although he finds her to be a bit out of place, he still enjoys her company. Will is then caught stealing from the palace when another lady calls out that Anastasia's dress was stolen from her carriage. As the two are cast out of the party, Will reveals that he has two small loaves of bread and he's just a happy, happy boy. He's so happy about them. So proud of himself. <laughs> Anastasia, however, she's clearly longing for more. After this fiasco, Anastasia is ready to go home, but not empty-handed. Will does not want to live the life of a thief any longer but Anastasia convinces him that it is their last heist. Steal the crown jewels, get back through the looking glass, and sell the jewels on the other side. 
Once inside the palace, Anastasia comically has no trouble breaking into the case holding the crown jewels. Her eye catches the red jeweled crown just as the king catches her red-handed. Anastasia points out his extreme wealth will not be bothered by a light pilfering, but the king is an imperialistic prick who believes in the thick dividing line between the haves and the have-nots. However, he admires her drive to be more than she is, and it doesn't hurt that she is easy on the eyes. He offers her a choice to be his queen or fuck off, sell the jewels, and wind up poor again in a cyclical pattern of poverty hell. Anastasia may love Will, but love don't pay them bills. Anastasia takes the king up on his marriage proposal, and Will finds out in the worst way as he waits for Anastasia in the courtyard below, only to see her introduced that evening as the king's new fiancé. And that is the end of Heart of Stone. What are your thoughts, my friends? So far, this was one of the better episodes, largely because it's about the only characters I can care about at all. <laughs> like, if Will or Anastasia is not in a scene, I just sort of zone out because I just don't care. Unlike Jafar's origin story, this at least didn't make me feel like I needed to go bathe in rubbing alcohol. And I think knowing some spoiler information about Anastasia does make you go, oh, about her motivations. But I don't want to spoil our lovely viewers who maybe haven't watched the whole show. I haven't watched it either. We just saw spoilers. Anyway, Anastasia was right and I'm making stickers that say it. One of the problems, <laughs> however, with centering this episode so heavily on the only interesting characters in the show is it just really drives home how much Alice is by far the least interesting character in her own story. Mm -hmm. It's very Arlo Guthrie in here. The song is supposed to be about Alice, but the interesting parts are the two weirdos trying to throw away garbage in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> you can get anything you want at Alice's But you only care about the people who are trying to dodge the draft and throwing away garbage where they shouldn't be. Although I did think it was interesting that they wanted to hammer home that somehow Alice is pure of heart when literally the first time we see this woman, she is abducting the white rabbit and dragging him across state slash reality lines to prove a point to her father. We then see her go on to commit multiple acts of murder, battery, and theft. But hey, she's the kindest person here. Okay, sure. I don't care what Millie Bobby Brown in a terrible wig says. Alice is a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah overall i like this episode a lot more than the last one but i think that's pretty clear already but i don't to go but up man <laughs> yeah will and anastasia continue to be my favorite part of the show and overall this felt like a pretty okay once upon a time like proper episode it felt probably the most like the core tv show and spoiler alert, but I, I thought the next one that we're about to talk about also felt more like a proper Once Upon a Time episode. Like these two felt very like, oh yeah, Once Upon a Time, we're watching a Once Upon a Time episode and here's an episode based on the backstory of, of this character, Anastasia. It felt like the core show. It felt familiar in a good way. But yeah, uh, Anastasia remains a very interesting character and you can definitely understand her motivations here. And I I thought this was a this was a pretty good one. Will remains to have the most earnest face and and puppy dog eyes, and he's kind of playing in these flashbacks like the Henry role or the charming role in these flashbacks. The man who's like all you need is is hope and love, and he just wants to be with her and to have like an honest life. And then he's just so happy and proud to have stolen them bread, just taking just enough for them to get by right now. 
And yeah, overall, I thought this episode did a pretty good job of helping the audience understand both their characters more. Like, I felt that I learned a lot about Anastasia and why she is the way she is, and also learned a lot about Will as well. So I thought it did a good job there. The present day storyline was okay. I didn't hate it. But just like Lynn already talked about, I, I don't quite understand why they did a pure part storyline with Alice, because it, it doesn't work with this Alice they've presented to us. It should have been like a true love test or a belief test. It shouldn't have been framed as pure part because it doesn't align with the hard Alice that we've been presented with here. They could have done this exact story just without the pure of heart spin, because that's not her. She's not pure part. And, and that's okay. This just should have been a, a true love test or a belief test or something like that. What about you, Chell? Okay, I love Will, but like, we don't actually see him and Anastasia like striving to change their circumstance other than literal change of scenery. Like, was there a struggle? Was there a search for different opportunities in Wonderland? Like, there is a big classist essay in there somewhere, but this show isn't competent enough for me to write one other than saying, you do you, Anastasia. Just purely going off what we are presented with, Will is content to live like a simple forest hermit life and live on hope and love. And I'm going to quote Barrett Strong. Your love gives me such a thrill, but your love don't pay my bills. In this non-socialist world, love and hope do not sate your hunger. They do not put a roof over your head. This is Imperialism 101. It's tragic and why it needs to end. And okay, I'm done with politicalizing. I just, I don't judge Anastasia at all. So like, I don't see this as like a villainous move. It's a kind of a dick move, you know, towards Will personally. Sure. You know, it's kind of like breaking up over text. Uh, it's like, eh, you could have done this like a little more gracefully, but whatever. I do have a theory, though, that she's trying to, like, change magic so she can, like, time travel and change her past decisions or maybe, like, go back and steal the jewels and go off with Will, kill the king. You know, I don't know. Who knows? I think she did kill the king. I think she did kill the king. Yes. Because yeah, you never see him. Happen. Yeah. So I just was like, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Yeah, like, you never see him and everyone's always just like, the queen. And I'm like, so what happened after that? Did you just, how long did you wait before you murdered him, babe? <laughs> mm -hmm. I agree with everything that you both have said about Alice, like, she's just not interesting. Whoa. But I did love a wee goblin-looking Millie Bobby Brown, despite the nasty wig. It was nice yep. to see her again. I was like, oh, such a bad wig. I don't know why they did that. I don't know, because she had blonde hair before. My only assumption was when she was, like, supposed to be, like, all scrungly. Because, you know, you first see her, she's all, like, her dress is torn and dirty and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, my only guess is they're like, we don't want to put actual nasty shit in her real child hair yeah so okay. we're just gonna buy a ten dollar yeah. wig off amazon and just throw it around the backyard for a while yeah, yeah. probably honestly probably yeah but it's just it was it was a really bad wig mm -hmm. but despite the wiggy wig overall pretty good episode all right next one yeah no i know it's me just one more to go who's alice that's what this episode's called it aired on November 21st, 2013. It's written by Jerome Schwartz. It was directed by Ron Underwood. And the title card is a Borogrove flower. Here we go. The A-plot is for Alice as the magic dust leads her to westward towards Cyrus. She is stopped by two filthy dudes who she easily knocks out when they demand her amulet as a toll. Alice then makes her way into the Black Forest where ominous signs warn her to turn back. 
Alice is afraid, but she presses forward with the torch she swiped from the thieves. Strange noises are heard during the journey. Alice's flame goes out, but she makes it to the brightly lit dreamy boro grove. A flower shoots a lavender mist at her, which relaxes Alice. She's startled when a creepily smiling man with a handsaw appears before her, because, like, Jesus fuck, who wouldn't be, <laughs> identifying himself as the carpenter. Sure. Alice's thoughts are suddenly quite scattered as she suddenly believes that it'd be okay to stay exactly where she is. Meanwhile, Will runs into the two thieves who tried to rob Alice and heads for the Black Forest. After also being sprayed with lavender mist, the knave is reunited with Alice. Taking a quick look around, Will quickly realizes he is in an unintentional allegory for cults or religious corruption, starring the creepy carpenter. Oh, that's extra symbolism. Alright, once upon a time, I'm gonna give you that. He's a carpenter. Ah, ah, no? Okay, I'll see myself yeah. out. No, Alice no, 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 horrified by something mm -hmm. was the walrus and the carpenter oh it's very upsetting very so upsetting. upsetting so upsetting i mean don't get me wrong now i understand because oysters are fucking tasty but still <laughs> you're, oh, you're no. alone on that ship over you're here alone on that yeah <laughs> yeah no we're we're you, you you can you can have the oysters we you're not fans oh, fine. <laughs> you can you and my dad can go have oysters together hell yeah <laughs> Anyway, yes, yes. Religious corruption starring the creepy carpenter. I see what you did there. All right, that's where we were. Alice seems to have put her desire to save Cyrus on hold. Will demands answers from the carpenter, who turns into a tree. Oh, shit. All the trees have faces now. And Will has realized he is trapped in a cheap imitation of the film Annihilation and an old Star Trek episode. Will pleads with Alice, but his words fall on deaf ears as Alice no longer knows who she is. She violently swings her sword at the knave, insisting she's happy. Vines begin to overtake Alice. Will cannot force Alice out of the Borogrove cult. She has to leave out of her own desire to, to do so. He reminds Alice that she'll never truly be happy without Cyrus. Which is a little shitty, Will. That is a little shitty. <laughs> yeah. I get what he was trying to do, but I definitely had a moment to be like, Oh, I wasn't Please. mad at Will. I was mad at the writers. I know. Yeah, I was. I was like, I, I definitely had a like. Why did you write this line for him? We know our boy Will drinks his respect women juice and would not say this. Exactly. Don't don't do this. Don't do this. He's attacked by vines for his misogynistic remark as he manages to toss the amulet into his friend's hand. This causes a flood of memories to come rushing back to Alice. She snaps out of her hypnotic state to cut away the vines that surround her. Once they are free, Alice learns that the reason Will wasn't affected like she was is because he never put his heart back after Anastasia broke it. He got used to the emptiness. In the B-plot, Jafar arrives at Bethlehem Asylum masquerading as a doctor in a stolen suit. I laughed out loud at Jafar bursting out of the ground in the first scene. It was A-plus comedy gold. <laughs> I mean, it did look like the Earth had literally farted him out, and that is pretty funny. <laughs> it was so funny. Although they described Alice as having blonde hair in this, and I was like, excuse me, she has blonde highlights. Otherwise, that woman is a brunette. 
Oh, she's yeah. got she's got a grown out dye job is what she has mm-hmm. because she's got roots to her shoulder and blonde mm-hmm. tips. She was sun bleached from all her adventures and then it, oh, it grew out mm-hmm. in the asylum. But I, I, I do I enjoy that said with a French accent. But <laughs> I don't know, honey. It was weird. and I wasn't going to touch on it. But I do enjoy that there's just like a man who is about to be murdered for his suit, presumably. And he's just like painting. And then this dude just gets farted out of the earth at him. And he's just like, oh, my God, I just want to make landscapes. I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) But anyway, he ends up in the asylum in a dead man's suit. Jafar freaks out Dr. Lydgate by showing him the white rabbit. And also partially because he'd just been knocking back laudanum. So, yeah. uh, Using him as a scare tactic to learn everything there is to know about Alice. A short time later, Jafar shows up at Edwin's house. That's Alice's dad, Mm -hmm. in case you didn't know. He knows where his daughter went after she escaped the asylum and promises he can take Edwin to Alice. In the C plot, Cyrus climbs down the rocky wall outside Jafar's castle. He sees the glow of an amulet in the distance. He knows this is Alice. Cyrus comes to a dead end in his escape run. The Red Queen appears behind him just as he runs up to the outskirts of the castle, which is on an island floating in the sky. She tries to tell him that sometimes love is not enough, but Cyrus disagrees and does a belly flop off the edge of the floating island into the ocean below, which, fuck. Why why the belly flop? Yeah, I was like, buddy, just dive. It's gonna hurt so bad when you hit that water. Yeah. Poor Cyrus's tum-tum. Bro. In flashbacks, we jump back one year to a time when Alice returns to England after losing Cyrus. She meets a little girl, Millie, who is actually her half-sister. Her father, Edwin, got remarried to a woman named Sarah. Alice is overwhelmed at the sight of her new family. Her father says she cannot mention Wonderland or Genies any longer if she wants to stay. Edwin and Sarah want her to try to fit in. She agrees only because she has nowhere else to go. Sarah prematurely pushes Alice to meet a suitable young man so she can move on with her life, so she sets up tea with the son of Mrs. Darcy who lives down the road. Alice simply isn't ready for something like this, but Edwin and Sarah are angered when they catch Alice telling Millie stories of Wonderland. The next morning, Mrs. Darcy's son pops by for breakfast, but Alice rebuffs him. She has a serious talk with her father, who she cruelly accuses of forgetting her deceased mother. Edwin is equally cruel as he offers Alice the choice of letting Sarah find her her husband or check into Bethlehem Asylum. Alice chooses the latter. That's the end of Who's Alice? What did you think? So in the past, Alice was hurting, and I I totally appreciate that, and her parents were super shitty. But I have to say, like, her dad is totally valid in remarrying and starting a family again. Like, what was he supposed to do? Be in mourning forever? Like, it was Alice's choice to leave again and again and not send any word to her dad or even periodically return. I actually don't think she was ever going to return. I mean, had Cyrus obviously not been kidnapped, or if she did return, she would have been married to Cyrus. I I don't know. But she was perfectly happy, like, not being around her dad, you know, and being there. I don't know. She's just, she's so off-putting to me. And it's just like, I, I want to be more sympathetic toward her plight because what Edwin and Sarah are doing is legitimately shitty, but she's just not a sympathetic character. And she like wants her dad to cut her some slack. And I'm like, well, why don't you do the same? And then I'm just like, see, this is why creating a Victorian England realm is a literal fucking hellscape. And I will die on this hill. Like, why would they do that? Oh, yeah, because time travel isn't supposed to be easy. Anyway. Otherwise, I really enjoyed the hell out of Will in this episode. 
annihilation slash old episode of Star Trek killer trees things flowers I don't know whatever creepy religious allegory that I was just having like an existential crisis over I was like oh my god (laughs) I'm like Will you are not a licensed deprogrammer (laughs) (laughs) but he was just so earnest and he's just what's the actor's name Michael Socha Michael Socha he is just too superior of an actor for this show (laughs) he's so good he's so good he's incredible incredible good his talents are wasted yeah I definitely recommend you finishing being human sometime because his character Tom just rips your heart out he's so so lovely if if I can find a streaming I will watch it so this was my first time watching this episode so yay this is my very first new episode on this podcast I think this at least for me, this is the first episode where Alice actually worked for me. She's still not my favorite, but I feel like I understand her a lot more after this episode. And I, I did feel for her. I thought the flashback story and the present day story for Alice worked very well together. This is definitely one of the better, if not best, narratively speaking episodes so far. Like both Alice storylines work very well together to tell a cohesive story. While I understand Alice's father needing to move on, it was very hard to watch him and his new wife have no sympathy for what Alice had been through. It was just this constant barrage of, have you tried just not being sad? Just just don't be depressed. And even if they don't understand the magic of it all, I wish her father would have shown understanding for the grief of it all. Because they had that really good conversation where she was like, you grieved, you grieved for years before you moved on. Why don't I I get that same respect? And he's like, well, because it's not real. And you're just like, so that was hard to watch. And it wasn't hard to watch because it was bad or uncomfortable like episode four. It was hard to watch because it felt real and raw. It was a good scene. It was well done. I thought the scenes with her talking to her little sister after Alice's nightmare was was lovely. Probably one of my favorites in the flashbacks. And I was actually so sure at the end of the episode, Jafar was actually going to show up and take Millie, not Alice's father. Mm. As Millie was the one that she had made that connection with during her grief over Cyrus. And her grief over what was supposed to be her future and her grief over her past that's like (laughs) overridden by this new family. and. Yeah, I thought that would have been a really good story beat to have it been Millie that Jafar came for. But that's not what happened. As far as the present day Alice plot, I thought the carpenter was properly creepy. The whole getting drugged by the flowers was so classic Star Trek. And, you know, the people escaping their hardships and their sorrows by turning into trees was very over the garden wall. And overall, I. I thought it was pretty entertaining. It ended in a decent climax scene with Will and Alice that Michael Socha just acted his little heart out in. He was funny in this episode. He was sweet. He was sad. Just just love him. Just love him. This was a pretty decent episode. At least to me. I I thought it was pretty good. What about you, Lynn? Problem is, I got so spoiled by the previous episode being about people I care about. So being back to, oh, remember Alice? The song's supposed to be about Alice. I was like, ah. 
God damn it, bootleg Blake Lively. I am so tired of you. And I just, I just, I know Elisa sort of touched on this point too, and so did Chell, but the whole Forest Grove was just a ripoff of classic Star Trek. And I expected Spock to be hanging out of a tree and Dr. McCoy'd be waxing poetic about the joys of a good mint julep. <laughs> and neither of those things happened because God hates me. And <laughs> I don't know. Besides Will, it was so hard to like anyone. I guess Alice's little sister was all right and the only one showing kindness at all. But I mean, Alice is Alice and she's not very likable. I agree it's unfair of her to assume that her father would never remarry, but also like never telling his new wife or her half-sister that she existed is fucked up, man. And they genuinely show no reason to believe that there is much love at all between Alice and her father. Especially since the last time she sees him, he's like, well, marry this short man boy or go to the loony bin. And he doesn't seem to care if she drops off the planet and her him. So having Jafar show up at the end being like, I know how to get Alice. Her dad is like, bro, this is the dumbest of the snidely whiplash plans you've come up with so far. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Like, it's going to be I... like, I got your dad. And she's going to be like, okay. Yeah. It's why it should have been Millie. It should have been Millie. <laughs> It should have been Millie. She would have Keep him. I don't Millie. want him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was only Millie they kept ignorant. I went back and read the transcript. Sarah knew about her. She just thought she had fucked off and like left. They're like, oh, well, she left. She ran away. Listen, it could still be fucked up that Lily didn't know about it without you coming for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's super oh, yeah. fucked up. Yeah. They're all repressed and don't talk about anything. And it's terrible. Yeah. And this is why it would be terrible to live in Victorian England planet. Yeah. All no, I, I agree with Chell's statement of why would you make an entire thing just be Victorian England? Like, don't get me wrong. There's some Victorian aesthetics that I think are great. But if it was like, it never left that. It's always that. It's always Victorian England. It's like, oh, fuck, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. No, 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 no. no. That's awful. No wonder this universe only produces the worst people imaginable. Mm -hmm. There's no way of escaping Victorian England. Like... How fucking, like, white privilege colonizing is that, right? Like, of the writers to do. I mean, that's also probably part of why Landscape Man was so afraid when Jafar popped out of the ground, because he's probably never seen anyone in his life who wasn't white. True. Yeah. True. Yeah, Victorian England realm is a hellscape. <laughs> Let's get out of here, man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about those costumes. <laughs> All right. Jafar got a glow up in episode four, and I am here for it. His hair looks so much better. His new outfit looks very sharp. And then they took it to the next level in episode six in his sharp stolen suit. 
sorry scared painting man that you you had to die but so he doesn't care he's dead now (laughs) but i'm glad they let naveen be the handsome man that he is anastasia continues to be the best dressed here in most cases the episode five red queen outfit at first i wasn't so sure about it when they first showed it because i was like are those sleeves too much but then i ended up falling in love with it by the end of the episode and that might actually be my favorite dress so far it was gorgeous and then her adventuring outfit in episode six with the pants and the coat it was like red version of like that snow white outfit we love so much the like adventuring leather she has it was kind of a similar silhouette to that but Mm -hmm. in that red queen brilliance and it just it was fantastic i loved that outfit i also enjoyed lizard's roguish look i thought it was very cute and I like Alice's blue dress and blue coat in Victorian England. I was not sure how to feel about how attractive Jafar looked in his Victorian dude getup. It was confusing. But I also feel like it makes you realize the actor is really a very handsome man when the costuming department is not hell-bent on making him look like a doofus for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> the costuming department hates this man, and I don't know why. No. I like Alice's blue coat! I didn't talk about it in the episode itself, but the fact that they put Anastasia in that bargain basement dress barn white prom dress for the ball made me want to eat my hand. Like, enough with the shitty prom dresses once upon a time. You always act like I'm not going to notice it, and I always do. (laughs) I knew you were going to comment on it. I was like, nope. so bad. Lynn's time to shine. (laughs) It's so bad. It's just like... I do like the Arthur meme fists clench every time there's a bad prom dress. (laughs) Every time. And then we have the noblewoman going, that's my dress. She stole it. And I'm just like, bitch, you really want to admit you own that goddamn thing? It would have fit better, like, if you were... Like at a Grecian kind she of inspired. Like, everyone else is like in these like very like knockoff Rococo esque outfits. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then she's just in here and like the last dress left on the rack after the 2012 prom season. Oh my gosh, you know what it has a really similar silhouette and design to? What? It's a white version of Giselle's purple dress from the end of Enchanted. Yeah, and I hated that dress yeah, too. Yeah, right. it's like the same thing going on. Yeah, with that same that that that. The, yeah, the so strap being that wear silver. $30 rack. I had the exact same silhouette thing. for my prom in 2001. It's just, it's not fairy tale. It's not fairy tale. It's not mm-hmm. fairy tale. I'm, 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 I'm Bernie Sanders over here going, once again, I am begging you to stop putting prom dresses in Once Upon a Time. <laughs> I do <laughs> think all it's related funny. subsidies. Yes. <laughs> that they thought enough to make Will's stolen outfit be like too small for him. And it's like clearly too small for him. But and it's like, also cute. Funny. Well, it's yeah, also cute. cute. It's a yeah. he like gets a legitimately like cute like it does you know it doesn't fit him great but he's got like this sweet little prince charming get up mm-hmm. and she's in this shitty prom dress and I'm just like why anguish. <laughs> I uh, I just I just sit down with the costuming department and be like do you run out of budget because I need you to start saving money. <laughs> I need We're, you to start putting money we away. Need to, we need to take some out of the feathered. Yeah. <laughs> the feather take some fund. out of the feather fund and put it aside because we can't keep doing this. We can't <laughs> keep having shitty prom dresses. We can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. <laughs> I squealed like a little girl and with all the uh Victorian 
realm Alice outfits, including her adorable nightgown. Yeah, um, it was pretty. Everything that she wore was absolutely adorable. I think that you could just say all the Victorian outfits because mm-hmm. I'm a grown-ass woman and I would wear Millie's oh, yeah. little pink dress and pinafore that you first see her in. Oh, yep. I don't yep. care who knows it. Yep, same. Big same. All those outfits. Gorgeous. So that's where I stand. Otherwise, I just agree with my co-host. Me just wailing about prom dresses in the mm-hmm. corner. Prom dresses. I, 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 I you them. said it, so I, I mean, I don't have to. I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is Lynn's time to shine. So <laughs> there's prom dresses. Lynn's gonna cry about it. She always does. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, it's time to take a trip down once upon a timeline, or blast out of it like you're farting to the moon. Like the Earth has farted you like- out. <laughs> So the flashbacks in episode four take place in the realm of Agrabah. So Agrabah is set up in this world as its own plane, much like Victorian England world. Agrabah is its own world, its own plane. It's not part of the Enchanted Forest. So these flashbacks here in episode four are the earliest things we have seen so far that take place on the Agrabah plane. And the event we can place most closest to these events are the original genie we know from the the core show, Sidney Glass, his eventual trip to the Enchanted Forest in season one, episode 11, Fruit of the Poisonous Tree, happened sometime after these Jafar flashbacks. So yeah, in the Agrabah timeline, Sidney's journey to the Enchanted Forest takes place after Jafar begins to pursue his search for the third genie bottle. So thank you to the Once Upon a Time Timeline Wiki again for help on this one. As for the flashbacks we see in episode five, they take place immediately, as in um, immediate, the same scene as the ones we saw at the very end of Once Upon a Time in Wonderland episode three, Forget Me Not. And the ones that take place most closely after what we have seen so far are those of young Alice in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland episode one, Down the Rabbit Hole. And finally, the ones we see in episode six take place immediately after Alice sees Cyrus fall to his death in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland episode one, Down the Rabbit Hole. And the episode that we've seen so far that most closely follows this is Alice in the Asylum, also shown during episode one of Wonderland. But from the wiki timeline, we also know that the Dark Curse was cast during the time Alice was held in the asylum. So she was held in the asylum during the time of Regina's OG curse. And that's it. That's that's what I have this week. All right. Well, it's time to play Who's That Guest Star? In episodes four through six, we have Zulika Robinson as Amara. Best known for acting opposite Naveen Andrews in Lost, Zulika Robinson can also be seen in film and TV titles such as Hidalgo. I hate saying this fucking word. Hidalgo? But there's no other L. Hidalgo. 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 Oh my God. Hidalgo. You just say it. Hugh Jackman horse movie. It's not Hugh Jackman. It's Viggo Mortensen. (laughs) Viggo Mortensen horse movie. movie. Viggo horse. Oh my God. Viggo Horsesen. (laughs) Hidalgo. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That one. Homeland, The Exorcist TV show, Law and Order SVU, and Still Starcrossed. She was Saeed's wife, right? Mm-hmm. yeah i wonder if that's why they had the romance angle because they got mm-hmm. they got her i bet that's why they did it mm-hmm. i think it honestly was just like a teaser for lost fans maybe they didn't think of the implications of what they just did yeah and they need to all go stand in the corner and think about what they've done yeah <laughs> 
Lauren McKnight as Lizard. McKnight is known for the My Super Psycho Sweet 16 slasher films and has guest starred on shows such as It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, How to Get Away with Murder, and NCIS Los Angeles. Ben Cotton as Tweedle 2. Ben Cotton is a prolific character actor with roles in such titles as Stargate Atlantis, Harper's Island, Hellcats, The Killing, The Bletchley Circle, San Francisco, and Supernatural. Maddie Finocchio. Is it Finocchio? Finocchio. Finocchio? Finocchio? Maybe Finocchio. Maddie Finocchio as Tweedle 1. Not to be outdone by his fellow Tweedle, Maddie Finocchio boasts an equally impressive CV with credits and titles such as Lucifer, Loudermilk, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Day of the Dead, the series, and Supernatural. Anthony Kavon as Young Jafar. Our sweet baby murder hobo has been working since the age of five in titles such as Lost, where he also played a young Naveen Andrews, aka Saeed, Twisted, Fresh Off the Boat, Generation, and Love Victor. Garwin Sanford as the Red King. Sanford got his big break starring in three Brian Adam music videos. You go, <laughs> sir. And has gained traction henceforth with roles and titles such as Airwolf, Hawkeye, Wind Calls the Heart, Christmas at Dollywood, and Supernatural. Sarah Jane Redman as Anastasia's mother. Beloved actor Redman is a familiar face to small screens with credits in The X-Files, Alienated, Da Vinci's Inquest, Smallville, Siren, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and Supernatural. Kylie Rogers as Millie. Although her character was undoubtedly named after young Alice actress Millie Bobby Brown, Kylie Rogers has been gaining traction in her budding career with roles on The Whispers, Collateral Beauty, Home Before Dark, and Yellowstone. Heather Dirksen as Sarah. Well-known character actor Dirksen may be recognizable as she has had roles in numerous animated features, including many Lego series, her most prolific role being the voice of Lego Princess Leia. She has also been seen on television shows such as Battlestar Galactica, Fringe, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and Van Helsing. She is also well-known to nerds around the globe as the very smoking hot Russian Jaeger pilot Lieutenant Sasha Kaidanovsky in Pacific Rim. Meow. I love, I love the Russians. In, I love everyone in Pacific Rim. I love Pacific Rim. I was ogling her something fierce. I love Pacific Rim and the sequel never happened. There is no sequel. So now it's our rants and raves. So our segment where each narrator shares something they're loving this week or something that's kind of getting under their skin. What do you got, girls? All right. So Lynn and me went to Princess Night at Disneyland. We saw many friends there, and it was really fun. They even had a plant-based high tea service at Cafe Orleans, and it was delicious. And we got to watch the show while it was going on, and it was just a very chill night. We also had a few different hangouts with friends this last week. One at Downtown Disney on Saturday, and another at the San Diego Zoo on Sunday. A different group of friends. Both folks we don't get to see that often. And it was so much fun to see so many friends in one week from these different events. But I am exhausted. My wife and I basically do everything together. So she's touching on all the same things I did. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's the episode. episode where Lynn just goes, no. Yeah, what she said. That's what uh, I'm thinking. I'll, and then I I'll, cowboy away. <laughs> I'll write all my notes after you next time. No, it's fine. So I guess I'm just going to rant about a movie I saw recently, and I didn't like it very much. <laughs> um, I was really excited for it, which is part of the problem. 
It's called Nanny and Too Long Didn't Read. It's a horror movie about a woman who immigrates here and is saving up money to send back so her son can move here and live with her. Then things start getting weird and haunted at the place that she is nannying at. It ties in a lot of African mythology and imagery as the sources of what is haunting her. And that's very cool. And the visuals are very cool, especially since one of the things was like evil mermaid lore, which fuck, I'm about that. And the mood is so good. And you really think for the run of the film, oh shit, this is going somewhere truly amazing. And then 10 minutes before the end of the movie, it abruptly just drops what it's doing and goes, they all lived happily ever after, like out of nowhere. Here's the thing. There's nothing that bothers me more than wasted potential. And that's what this movie is. I know it was the director's first movie. And I feel like she'll grow and do something great because her atmosphere is off the charts. But it was an ending so lame that even Stephen King would be like, oh, no. And that upset me. (laughs) So uh, there you go. An actual rant for once. Oh, that's me. Uh, Not much going on here, but I do have some recommendations. The Last of Us, if you are the last person on the planet that hasn't been watching it. I'm kind of in Last of Us purgatory, and I love being here. I want to talk about it forever. And by the way, this is coming from someone who did not play the video game, because it's just a really fucking great show. Also, another great show, Poker Face, starring Natasha Lyonne who I have adored since I was a small child and I first saw her and her curly, curly hair on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And I have followed her career since, but I really encourage everyone to watch it. It is so quirky and so fun. And it's just really good storytelling on top of it all. It's about this woman who has the, basically Emma Swan's power, actually. She has the ability to tell when someone is lying. Hmm. And she figures out that somebody that she's working for murdered her best friend. And now she's on the run from them. And so each episode, there's a murder that you see happen. And then the episode backs up to show you how Charlie, uh, Natasha's character, was involved. Or like, you know, some way, like she's in the background somewhere, like either she's working there or she's just passing through town or blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? It's really funny and just really good. So I I highly recommend it. It's on Peacock. Go watch it. So that way uh, you can talk about it with me. (laughs) So next time on Once Upon a Rewatch, old wounds are reopened, and while some heal, others do not. Meanwhile, the Red Queen and Jafar are sick of each other's bullshit. Thank you for tuning in to Once Upon a Rewatch. We are the Narrators 3. The moral of this episode is... This song might be about Alice, but no one's going to your restaurant because you kind of suck. Visit us at Spotify for podcasters to answer episodic questions, send us voice messages, or to find out other ways you can help support the podcast. You can find our page at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash once upon a rewatch. If you enjoy Once Upon a Rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your platform of choice. Talk fairy tales with us on Twitter at Once Upon Rewatch. On Instagram at Once Upon Rewatch. On Tumblr at Once Upon a Rewatch.tumblr.com. The artwork for our podcast was by Lychee Ruru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. Our intro music is Frost Waltz. And our outro music is Fairy Tale Waltz. 
This podcast uses material from episode-specific pages on the Once Upon a Time wiki at Fandom and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. And remember, all plot devices come with a price. Meanwhile, in the bleep, in the bleep, (laughs) the bleep, in the bleep, in the bleep.